Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. This episode of Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce is brought to you by Brannigan, Inc. For nearly two decades, Brannigan, Inc. has energized brands in the entertainment industry, helping fairs and festivals connect with audiences. Their creative, results-driven marketing approach drives attendance and makes communications fun. Check them out at BranniganInc.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Spectrum Weather Insurance. Spectrum Weather Insurance provides a variety of rain, heat, severe weather, and event cancellation insurance customized for your specific event. They have the experience and expertise that hundreds of events rely on each year. Visit them at SpectrumWeatherInsurance.com. advanced age bruce (laughs) what (laughs) so yes yes. advanced age mm -hmm. like a year older than you correct over time the crazy advancements in technology where you're going from slicing the actual tape at the radio to us sitting in front of garage band just copy paste type of things what's in your mind what's the best like advancement with technology that you've got to see i think it's the computer okay you know the in-home computer because Mm. you watch you know apollo 13 and they're trying to get back to earth with duct tape and (laughs) you know what you know Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. and here you have in your home what you can do you don't it's great for me. Right. The computer at home, I don't have to go to a store. Can you hear us okay? What? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, Phil, it's so good to see you. This is great. Yeah. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence And our guest today on our podcast probably doesn't need any kind of introduction because leading up to this interview, I was past goosebumps, I think, to talk to this guest. But we'd like to welcome to our podcast, Mr. Phil Carson. Good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you may be in the world. Yeah, well, good day. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Phil. We really appreciate it. First off, I'd like to ask you, what is your relationship with Variety Attractions? Uh, Well, I've been working with Variety Attractions for a number of years now because they're one of the premium or probably the uh, premier booking agency for state and local fairs. And uh, the executive I've been dealing with in recent years is Todd Bolton. And he's really, when when I put Foreigner back together, um, he's the guy that really stood behind us and got us a number of dates and was very instrumental in, in breaking the band. So I have a great affinity for Variety Attractions and their whole work ethos. 
at present time right now, that's kind of your project right now is Foreigner, isn't that? Because you manage it, them? It, yeah, I mean, I keep trying to retire, but they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> um, you know, I, I celebrated my 76th birthday very recently. And, uh, you know, it's great to I worship the God of rock and roll that allows me to, to keep going at, at this time. Uh, you know, as you know, I've been involved with a, a lot of major artists over the years, been very fortunate to do that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a great ride. And Foreigner is one of those bands I started with um, when I was at Atlantic Records. I, I was running the international division and uh, when Foreigner had their first record in 78, um, you know, I did everything I could to try and break the band internationally. Uh, it wasn't easy because at that time, the, the English punk rock thing was starting to get into full swing and they hated anything that sounded vaguely like an American AOR band. Yeah. Uh, but Mick Jones, of course, having, was an English guy and he knew the uh, value of touring this band outside of America. His manager, who was a great guy too, called Bud Prager, didn't see it like that. He was thinking, well, we've broken so big right off the first bat. Feels like the first time, was, you know, top 10 single, top five single, actually. And uh, he was seeing like, the, the cash rolling in from American shows. And to take a band of six people plus their entourage to international markets was expensive. He didn't see why he should spend that time, but fortunately, I was able to convince him. We actually, we actually made a film of the very first Foreigner tour. Mm. We went all over the damn world with it. It was uh, that's why to, to this day, Foreigner is bigger in most international markets than the bands that came up at the same time, including Journey, who of course are, are pretty big in America, but overseas, you know, we have a bit of an edge there. So there we are. That's my wheelhouse is, you know, I bought all the foreigner vinyl, the REO vinyl, the Boston vinyl, you know, that's kind of, you know, my high school years. So I was a big classic rock fan. So I know who foreigner is, but I understand your challenge as far as when you mention the name foreigner, you know, I know Lou Graham and Mick Jones and, and all their songs. But when you mention the band foreigner, some people kind of hesitate and, yeah, what do they sing? Well, it's interesting you should say that because, you know, when I first put the band back together with Mick and we you know, were able to get Jason Bonham on drums, it was a, a big help for us. And uh, originally it was going to be Trevor Rabin on mm. keyboards and so forth, but uh, he suddenly got some huge offers to do movie soundtracks and that started a career path for him, which he's never left. Um, he comes out on the road occasionally with yes, as you know, but um, that's what uh, that, that, that initial idea was they would form the basis of the band. But fortunately, you know, Mick, you know, got the taste of it again and uh, he'd met Jason a few times. I used to have a, a house in Ibiza in Spain and uh, he'd been there at the same time as Mick one time and they became quite friendly. So, um, they got off to a pretty good start. We found a great singer in Kelly Hansen and put together an amazing band. But to your point, the general public out there, surprisingly, many of them have no idea who Foreigner is, they think. And I came to this conclusion on a plane one day and there's a guy sitting next to me, you know, probably 
closer to your age than my advanced years. And uh, <laughs> I'm not talking to you, Justine, by the way. I'm talking <laughs> to the part next to you. But the, um, the, uh, uh, this guy said, well, it's the usual conversation. You know, what do you do? I said, well, you know, I, I manage rock groups. And the guy says, who? I said, no, not the who. <laughs> I said, foreigner. He said, who? Listen, I told you, not the who, foreigner. So anyway, he said, he said I've never heard of foreigner. I said, of course you've heard of Foreigner. And I start singing the songs. The, the asshole knows every single song, right? But he yeah. says he doesn't know Foreigner, you know? And unfortunately, that's largely true. People have heard this great music on the radio all their lives without knowing who, they listen, who they're listening to. Mm -hmm. So that's why when we advertise a show with your friends at Variety Attraction, um, we always put the song titles in there because the brand is the song titles for Foreigner. Mm -hmm. so, you know, most, if, if people want to look, check it out, you go on YouTube and see a little movie called Is That Foreigner, which um, J. Walter Thompson made for us to try and address this problem head on. Oh. It's quite funny. It features Kelly Hansen and it had some technology in it where if you, the, the dialogue is all foreigner lyrics, right? Okay? And if you could spot the song from which the lyrics came, you were supposed to be able to like, press a button, claim that you were the first one to spot that and win a prize. And the J. Walter Thompson were all over this. This is brilliant technology. We're gonna take it to Cannes and enter it into the Golden Rose, which is a huge advertising agency thing. And then the technology never works. <laughs> but, but the film is still pretty funny. So you should yeah. try and check it out. Is that foreigner? It's yeah, on the is foreigner. that foreigner? Yeah. Well, well, speaking of technology, Phil, let's go back to ACDC. There were some pretty interesting technology presented to you when someone presented the band ACDC mm. to you, correct? Yeah, that, it's, it's very interesting. That it's, you know, I signed ACDC in 1975 and what had happened, I, I was working on a, a band that uh, I was in the studio with called Max Street Crawler. And that was the band of an of a English guitarist called Paul Kozoff, who your viewers and listeners may well know as the, the guitarist of Free. He played that incredible guitar solo on All Right Now. Great guitar player. So we built a band around him and they were in the studio. I felt it needed a little something more. And I tracked down this um, keyboard player I wanted that did that worked with Free. Actually, still, he works with The Who to this day. This, hmm. this great player. And I found he'd been managed by this Australian girl. And she comes into my office and uh, she's charming, Australian, and looks great. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, this is a very nice young lady. And uh, she said, well, can I? We made the deal to do the, um, uh, to, to have this guy join the recording sessions. And she said, look, I hope you don't think it unprofessional of me, but can I discuss something else with you right now? And believe me, I, she could have discussed anything she wanted. <laughs> <laughs> He said, my little brother manages a group in Australia and she must be all like 24 or something. And I think, what the hell is this? And she, but, you know, she said, um, we're trying to get them signed. And they're, they're quite big in Australia. They've sold 100,000 records. That, that was big in Australia then. But it was Australia. I mean, who, who really cared? Mm -hmm. but, uh, she said, well, you know, I've set up this tour for them. The record company is paying for them to come to England and try to get signed and she produced this little schedule of all the right places that a breaking band should play, you know, the opinion making clubs. Uh, 
And she said, will you come to a show? I said, well, you know, yeah, sure, of course, yeah, come with you, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> sure, okay. She said, can, can I show them to you now? And I said, sure. And this is 1975. There are no videos in 1975. Uh, and I said, well, you got a photograph or two? She said, no, I can show you the band. And she has this briefcase thing, you know, right? And you know the briefcase look. Can I see this? Mm -hmm. Briefcase looks yeah. like yeah. You open it up, and this briefcase opened like this, and there was a screen popped out in the middle, and it was a Super 8 back projection, with audio, of course, of um, ACDC doing Long Way to the Top. Now the technology I've never is by a company called Fairchild, who are now quite big in Australian, you know, digital stuff. But, and technology, but I'd never seen anything like this at the time. It was mind-blowing. And there was Angus with you know, Bon with his shirt off doing this great song. And she reminded me years later that I stopped it halfway through, there's a stop button. And she said, well, well, don't you like it? And of course, when you're trying to sign a band, you don't want to be over enthusiastic because the money goes up, right? Yeah, so, right. Mm -hmm. I, was like, I tell you what, why don't I sign them now just, and then the record company can still send the band over and I'll put them as support on this Backstreet Crawlout tour, which the span we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. She said, you can do that? I said, I can do anything. You know? <laughs> so Whoa. we called her, her little brother <laughs> in the middle of the night in Australia and I made a deal for ACDC over the phone with him, which is now reputed and probably really is the most profitable deal in the history of the record business because um, I signed them for $25,000 and the record company had to pay to send them to England to do that tour at their cost. So there was 25,000 an album with options for two albums a year for five years. So if mm -hmm. you do that, that's, a $25,000. It's okay. I'll get that for you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, somebody has, by the sound. Yeah. Of <laughs> Good. All right. So where were we? Okay. So that, if you do the math, you, you'll find that for $25,000, I signed 15 albums worth of uh, AC mm. songs. Transpired that after I left Atlantic, um, they sold the last album in that series to Sony for $10 million. So it was a, quite a quite a good deal. So did you get a because you know they sold a couple records in their time? Uh, <laughs> a couple. I mean, did you get a piece of that action? Well, you know, this was really about the time when A and R people were only just starting to get a piece mm. of the. Action. It was your job. You did your job. You signed the band. If if the bands worked, you kept your job. If it, they didn't, you lost your job. So mm -hmm. I was very fortunate uh, to be in the right place at the right time and signed like a number of bands that did rather well. But including Yes, they sold a lot of records too. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I never had a piece of the action. I got paid quite well. Um, Ahmed Erdogan, who was the, the guy who founded Atlantic Records, gave me a Bentley after the band had oh, sold their first five million records, which yeah. was very nice. But listen, I would have rather had five cents an hour. <laughs> right. If I had that, I wouldn't be talking to you guys now. I mean, yeah. one cent an album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of money, right? Yeah. 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 Going back to, you know, managing foreigner 
a long time ago versus bringing yeah. them back to the forefront of people's minds now. How yeah. has that management of artists changed over time? Well, I was in a different position, as I told you, when we, we signed the thing. I was not managing them. I was running the record company side of it. And both sides of the business have changed radically since those days. Uh, but one thing is constant, is that if you want to break a band, they've got to get out on the road. That's true now, as it certainly was then. And if they can deliver on the road and they've got great songs, eventually it's going to work. ACDC, after I signed them, uh, and the first album came out, which was before they went to America, didn't hardly do anything. The record company over the other side of the pond, which is your side of the pond, mm -hmm. oh, this band is derivative, they're not going anywhere. And they, they actually dropped the band. I managed to re-sign them. Um, they, they dropped them after they delivered an album called Dirty Deeds, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you know that album? Mm -hmm. Dunder Cheap, mm -hmm. Phil. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. And... Uh, they said this is going nowhere and they didn't even put that album out until much later on after mm. Back in Black, they decided, oh, we've got this album we've never released. <laughs> you know? and there were some Sherlock Holmes types in the record company at the time. Oh, and okay. They decided to make what I've said is the, one of the worst mistakes in record company history because we at the time sold something like six or seven million with Back in Black with Brian Johnson singing and then following up with a Bon, John, bon Scott uh, vocal. Mm -hmm. I, I, I thought that was a terrible mistake. I told them so. And everybody's arguing with me. They say, oh, they're going to sell, you know, three million of this at least, having sold whatever they sold of back in black at the time. And I said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to create a new sales plateau for ACDC if you do that. And that proved to be right. Mm -hmm. Back in black went on and I think it sold almost 30 million in America, which makes it one of the biggest rock albums of all time. Mm -hmm. No other album really reached anything close to that peak. I mean, a couple of them actually did do a few more than three million, but not much more. Yeah. And I, I put it down to really destroying the momentum that the band had. They should have waited for the next Brian Johnson record, and which was a pretty good record for those about the rock. Right. We that, salute you. Yeah. But that only did about the same as Dirty Deeds. So it was a terrible mistake. If you want to put a name to it, it was made by Doug Morris, who later became a very important figure in the music business. Hmm. Don't know why, but there it is. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite story you could share of the late Bon Scott? I, I did hang out with Bon a few times. He was a, he was a lovely guy, really. Hmm. But he, he didn't mind a drink. I have to be <laughs> Um, but you know, no, nothing in particular. He was such. He was a very, underneath that bravado, he was a very friendly soul. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and he he was the epitome of a lead vocalist. I mean, you know, people like Axl Rose came on later. You know, he was mm -hmm. a good front man at the beginning, but nothing like Bon Scott. I mean, if Bon Scott had lived, no, God knows where things would have gone. Mm -hmm. They were so fortunate in finding Brian who had met Bon before, in fact, that a club, oh. you know, Bon came up to where everybody was seated and said, hey man, if anything happens to me, this is your guy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, really? Really. Man, wow. Quite a, <laughs> quite a long, he, Brian, Brian had a big hit at the time in a group called Geordie. They were doing quite well in England and uh, 
when they ran into each other in Newcastle, I believe it was, that that transpired. Most interesting. Hmm. You, um, you are a <laughs> legendary record label executive. I worked for a record label here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for a few years, and it was called Narada and Back Porch Records. And it, it was in 1998 when Virgin actually bought the label. So mm -hmm. I was actually part of Virgin and EMI Records, which was very cool. I wanted to ask you, because you signed Virgin, I did. did you, yeah. What kind of relationship did you have with Sir Richard Branson? Well, at the beginning, you know, still have a relationship with him, really. But at the beginning, it was very, very close, of course, because mm -hmm. his, uh, I signed him because my um, then girlfriend, who later became my then wife, mm -hmm. um, was, was the uh, assistant producer on a very important English TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test. So I got to know her because I was trying to get my bats on her TV show a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, there was one night, uh, you know, it, it, her show was on a Tuesday night. So she was doing live television on late at night on a Tuesday. So that was my night for going out, you know, and I just, we weren't married, by the way. I'm just addressing okay. this. <laughs> <laughs> why is he? Why is, is he telling me this? Yeah, why is okay, he looking Bill. at you, Justine? <laughs> I, I, you know, I just don't want Justine to think badly of me about. Oh, that. Okay. oh no, I don't think so. No, not at all. So. so Tuesday was my night for um, going out, and I had this great date lined up. And then um, Jenny, my then girlfriend, uh, called up and said, "Look, we're putting a piece of music on the air tonight. This guy just came in. He's played us something which we love." and we're gonna put it on the air. And there were no, there's no video attached to it, but they used to, this program used to pick old movies and set them to a new piece of music. And somehow they, it would always coordinate after a while, somehow, mm -hmm. most peculiar. Mm -hmm. And this was an old film of people skiing in the twenties or thirties, you know, black and white, just people skiing. And there's this piece of music playing, you see? So I go into the show and I meet Richard in the green room at the studio. And I hadn't heard the thing till it was transmitted live on the air, okay? And it was a piece of music called Tubular Bells. Mm. And uh, I, I said, wow, that is fantastic. And when we got talking, he said, well, I've got a whole label. And he, he had some other stuff with him, that, which was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so I made the deal with Richard in the studio, virtually, we tidied it up a bit later, we shook hands on it, uh, to sign Virgin to Atlantic for five years. I won't disclose the amount of money on that one because the ACDC stuff is a matter of record. Mm -hmm. uh, is it? But it was still a reasonable, a reasonable deal. And of course, are you aware of the piece of music called Tubular Bells? I am because yeah, you know, people, being oh, part of Virgin and it, EMI, I oh, was. Yeah. Justin, have you heard of that? Oh, no. You've never heard of it. Okay. Can you, okay. Will you, will you yeah. have? Can you hum a few bars? Yeah. yeah. Will you sing to me? Well, it's totally instrumental. It's groundbreaking. And you've heard it so many times because you saw the movie The Exorcist. And the soundtrack mm. of The Exorcist is Jubilee Bells. Mm. Oh, okay. Oh, All right, I'm with yeah. you. I'm following right. And that, and that was because of the, 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 the guy I used to report to at Atlantic, Jerry Greenberg, who was the president. He, he, I'd made the deal, I sent the tape over to him and said, well, this is, this is great, man, but you know, 
you know, is instrumental. AOR doesn't play instrumental music very much, you know, but it, but it is good. He said, let me think about it for a, a day or two. He then sent it to Warner Brothers and said, this could be a great soundtrack. William Friedkin, who's the director of The Exorcist, had already recorded a soundtrack with a um, orchestra. They'd spent a fortune on it, actually, for mm -hmm. them. He scrapped the whole thing and used tubular bells. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's a so, decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he was, and that's, that's, what, that's what built the company that you later came to work for, mm -hmm. because he sold 20 million of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, it's a, uh, it's amazing when you were talking about doing the deal with Sir Richard Branson for yeah. this. I was just talking to a, an event today, and he used to be in management as well. But how our business, it isn't the paperwork or anything like that. It's all about relationships and handshakes, and it's yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it actually... Um, a few years ago, when I co-produced the um, Led Zeppelin reunion in, in uh, London, for, which celebrated the, the life of Ahmed Erdogan, he was the first person I called. I said, Look, I want to put together a charity board for this. I would like you to, to be on it. And he joined in a heartbeat. And, you know, and by then, of course, he, was, he owned Virgin Records as well as Virgin Air Airlines. Mm -hmm. And he contributed tickets for people to come from America to see the show. And of course, it all went to charity. We raised a great deal of money for charity. That was a, a big moment. Yeah. He's a very, he's a, a genius, as we all know. As Yes, yes. Far smarter than me, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, both of us together. Tell us about a time, have you flown with him? On Virgin Airlines? No, I actually never have. Oh. No I, eating caviar on his private jet? No, none of that. But by the way, when he was getting Virgin off the ground, Virgin, he would fly coach always just mm. to check it out and make sure the people in the back were happy. There you go. Very smart man. Oh, I like that. Yeah. He doesn't fly coach a lot anymore. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I want to know, Phil, back in those before you went to Atlantic, how did you turn down? or leave your job selling bacon to, <laughs> to, to go to Atlantic. I mean, bacon and males, that's hand yeah, in hand. Yeah. How did you turn that down? Yeah, that's very funny you should say that. Because, you, know, you know, I started life as a musician, in, in my music life as a musician, mm -hmm. back in the very early, or <laughs> well, late 50s, really, if you really want the truth. And I eventually joined... Um, a band called the Springfield, so and Dusty Springfield was yep. the mm -hmm. singer. Uh, and then at a certain moment, you know, we would, I was doing okay. I, in fact, I was in a few English bands at the time that had some chart success, but um, you know, playing bass. But my family had the supermarket business side, and uh, my uncle actually ended up managing as the chairman of Safeway in in Europe. So there was a, mm -hmm. they wanted me to get into this business and. For one way and another, I eventually did and uh, had a huge opportunity, as <laughs> it sounds like, you know, to, to run marketing, for, uh, sorry, at the advertising agency to be the account executive on Danish bacon <laughs> and their other well-known product, Wurpak butter, which is to this day, one of the finest butters in the world. Hmm. Uh, and I was gonna be running that. 
and I took the job to go and do that. But the about the, the couple of days after I took the job, and I was to start in a month's time, this guy with this strange name starts calling me Nahusi Huerti Gertney or something. I later find it's Nessui Ertigan, and mm -hmm. the job is to run Atlantic Records in London. And uh, I, the, the job with Danish bacon paid quite well. It was a good job. You know, we had a car, this, that, and the other. And, all and, the uh, bacon you can eat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the bacon you can eat. I mean, yeah. Come on. <laughs> I met Nessie, I'll never forget it, in the in a nice suite in the Connaught Hotel, which is a very upmarket hotel in London. And the, the Ertigans were very... Uh, sophisticated and highly educated people. Their father was the Turkish ambassador to America and they had been through all the right diplomatic training. They've been to the right schools. They spoke seven languages each. And, uh, you know, they were huge fans of, of music. Nesui, more of jazz. Um, and then Ahmed started out as a big jazz fan, but really embraced particularly English rock music. I had no idea of this walking into this meeting, what these two guys were about. And, you know, at the point I decided I didn't really care that much. I, you know, the food industry was what my family had built their, their money on and here am I getting independently, getting a really good job. And, you know, I was gonna do this job. And he said, um, I turned him down. And he looked at me in astonishment. He said, you're turning down Atlantic Records to join a fucking bacon company? I mean, I've never heard him swear ever again, ever since that time, by the way. <laughs> he was in shock. So he said, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to double what they're paying you. No car. And don't ask me for a raise for two years. Mm. I mean... Mm. That was a pretty <laughs> so much bacon, bacon, Led Zeppelin, bacon, Led Zeppelin, bacon. So anyway, <laughs> I I did, and uh, yeah. that's what started. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you mentioned Led Zeppelin. Tell us, tell us the start of that. Well, Jerry Wexler was greatly interested in Jimmy Page. Jerry Wexler was, of course, a, a partner of Atlantic Records' ownership. And he had heard of Jimmy Page and heard his session recordings. And he heard that he was finding a band and uh, he called up Peter Grant, who was the manager and said, listen, you've got to bring this band to Atlantic. He made the initial uh, foray to try to get, as it was called, the New Yardbirds at that particular time. And then Arnett came in and made the actual final deal. And that's, that was a huge moment for Atlantic. And, and for me, because, uh, you know, I, I, they knew I was a musician only a few years before. And they used to occasionally let me up on stage and, you know, play the encore with them. I played bass and Jonesy would go and play keyboards. I have to say, he played better bass with his feet on a pad on the pedals of a Hammond organ. Than <laughs> but it was a, we had a, we were, we were very close at, at that point with the beginning of Led Zeppelin. And I toured with them. I was the go-to guy from Atlantic to um, to Led Zeppelin for, for many years. Well, I mean, they kind of dropped a pretty uh, pretty good single in your lap to uh, get that train started again. Well, they did, but it, it was that was a whole lot of love you're talking about. But, yes, uh, 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 they didn't want to put it out as a single, and um, 
I decided, I said, I've never met Peter Grant before this time, but I said, come on, you know, this is a record here that we've got to get on the chart. This is how we sell records. I know about this. I'm a marketing guy, you know, mm -hmm. and we're going to go with the same. You, you, you know, don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I went against the grain and I put the single out. Ahmet called me and told me to get them all back. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if you could ever find a copy of the seven inch of Whole Lot of Love, English pressing. I think yeah. they're in hands for like a thousand dollars right now. So wow. I wish I'd <laughs> you. well, you know, only a few two or three thousand got out at the end of the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Phil Carson, the bass player, infamous, playing with Led Zeppelin and ACDC and Dusty Springfield. What does his hospitality rider look like? Mm -hmm. What does Phil Carson demand at his gigs? <laughs> only the finest. Bacon, butter. Bacon. <laughs> I, I, I accept no substitute to Danish bacon. Yeah. <laughs> but nothing, nothing special on your personal rider. Well, I just, just, just take what I can get by hanging around rock stars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm sure. Yeah, that's a pretty good list. Yeah. yeah and then, and story then, too, but not now. Okay. And then you're, and then you're, and then you're good looking groupies. Yeah. And, yeah. The fan, the I wasn't going to go there, but maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but touring during those times, I mean, the the fan base, tell us about the fans. Did you ever encounter a crazy situation where they're... Sure. Yeah. I mean, there were there were a, a lot of times when the people have one hit too many and gone out of their, their minds. But, uh, you know, we managed to escape anything serious over the years. And everybody had stalkers, you know. I had a stalker. You know, oh. you know what? You know, it's sort of not really important, but uh, you know, they they just try. People were just trying to track you down. You knew the guys really well, um, both Led Zeppelin, ACDC. When they bring you up on stage, is it a whole different feeling than you guys just kind of joking around backstage? When you all of a sudden get on stage with those bands, well, what yeah, what's yeah. that vibe like? They're all very serious about their music, but they frequently have a little bit of fun when they introduce me. And, you know, there's a recording of uh, me joining the band, I think it was in Frankfurt. Um, and, you know, Robert introduced me as uh, who I was. And he said, he only has one thing on his mind, money. And we did the beat <laughs> money. I mean, we just had a little bit of fun like that. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I got to play... With Genesis, yes, and uh, ACDC, yeah. I mean, the only band I I hadn't played with back in the day was Foreigner, funnily enough, although mm. I did mm. I did jam with them in later years. And in fact, one day we brought up um, uh, we brought up Brian Johnson, and uh, we we did a song with him, which I played on. But I think there was one funny period talking about Foreigner was that. Um, they, they were playing in Germany somewhere. I can't remember where. Foreigner were huge in the sort of, you know, like late 70s, I think it was. I can't remember the exact place mm -hmm. it was. But, you know, and I brought Jimmy and Robert out to, to see them. You know, we thought we'd just have a, a boys trip. And go, I think it was in Munich. And we, we go there and uh, uh, it was all arranged that we were going to play the old song Lucille. And I would oh. play, play, play bass on it, okay? 
And, you know, we, we rehearse in a bit in the dressing room, make sure it's close. And we, we get up, there, get together on the stage. Rick Wills, who is the bass player of Foreigner, literally body checked me out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, because he wanted to play with Jimmy. Don't blame him. Yeah. Jimmy. But the joke was they couldn't find the riff. The riff of Lucille is very similar to the riff of Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. And they kept going into the Roy Orbison's. <laughs> I was on the side of the stage gloating. I said, I yeah. need to play that song. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but they, they found it eventually. Was there ever an act that you pursued to come to Atlantic that kind of like the fish that got away? Midnight Oil, I tried to get, and the Stray Cats, I tried to get. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, I've become very friendly with Brian Setzer ever since. He said he wished he'd signed with us at the time, but you know it, it didn't work out. I think the competitors paid more money than we were going to pay, which is mm -hmm. fine. Um, that, they're about the, the only two that I really would have liked to have signed that I didn't sign. Of the ones you did sign, what's kind of your shining moment for you? Well, ACDC, of course, is, is the biggest, but you know, I could tell you about when I didn't, it wasn't a shining moment, which I, I thought was, was a great idea. Steve Marriott, and he reformed Humble Pie, or the Small Faces, big one. And um, I thought that could be huge because Marriott was, what a great talent he was. And I had to buy his contract from A&M, cost a damn fortune and didn't sell. I mean, it wasn't a bad record, but just didn't work out that way. Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately uh, he passed away. So, but that was, that was a very expensive mistake, but you know, I'll own up to it. It was mine. Because mm -hmm. now along with Foreigner, you're involved a lot with Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister. Yeah, well, I signed Twisted Sister at Atlantic and uh, you know, Dee and I became very good friends and uh, when Twisted, and I reformed Twisted, by the way, you know, after, to, to be on a movie soundtrack called, of a movie D wrote called Strangeland. And the mm -hmm. opening song is Twisted Sister. And uh, so I was instrumental in re-signing them. And then I took on the management uh, along with JJ French, who was the founder of the group. And I was very proud of bringing them back to, to where they became in Europe, really big again. I mean, we we co-headlined a tour, co-headlined with Ozzy and Metallica. You know, mm. they couldn't understand why Twisted Sister were co-headlining. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, and then uh, became very, as I said, I was very close with D all the time, and uh, of course, I still take care of him personally. I don't manage Twisted Sister anymore, but I certainly take care of D. A lot of a lot of people in music they they grow up and they're either a Beatles person or they're a Rolling Stones person. Which way do you go on that, Phil? It's a very I never thought about that actually. I was a huge fan of the Beatles, uh, you know, when they first started because uh, you know that was in the period after I'd been a musician. Um, now wait a minute, the Beatles. <laughs> Oh, you know, the four guys with the <laughs> haircuts. Hair. And... I, I remember them. No, I hadn't stopped playing by them. In fact, I was in a band. <laughs> I was in a band produced by the legendary Joe Meek. Joe Meek was the first ever independent record producer. I mean, uh, and we actually got lucky with a hit. And we were 
you know, top five or top 10 in England, I can't remember, big record. And the Beatles had just put out Please Please Me. And uh, we supported the Beatles on their first tour of Scotland. You know? Oh, yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. Because hmm. oh, in, in those days, I was sort of mouth driven as I am today. And because uh, I was the guy that would talk to the audience, you know. And we were in the middle of our own little tour, you know, playing small, much smaller places, and, but we were headlining it. And uh, we'd, start, uh, we'd start the song with an instrumental and, and then we'd come on and during the riff going on, I'd say, you know, thanks for having us here, everybody in Cardiff today. And uh, now I'd like to introduce you to the star of our show, Houston Wells. That was the name of the band. Houston oh. <laughs> doesn't matter really very much. But I did that when we were supporting the Beatles. I'd like to introduce you to the star of our show. The place went crazy. And I go, Houston Wells? <laughs> it was just like, womp. <laughs> I did the wrong thing then, that's for sure. Anyway, that's, that's that little story. But yeah, uh, Beatles for the Stones. I mean, really, the Stones rock. But the Beatles had some great songs. I think on balance it has to be the Stones, but uh, uh, they were quite something. Yeah, I thought you were going to tell us you're more of a Herman's Hermits fan. <laughs> nice chap. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but he had he had some good stories about Elvis and the Beatles. Yeah, and my God, I mean they were at the very top of it at, at the time, so he would have some good stories. I can tell you. Yeah. yeah. So what's Phil Carson doing now, other than music? Are you out? You know, just walking on the beach. Are you playing golf? Or oh, you, you I'm know? far too young to play golf. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. But what are what are your interests now, other than management and trying to retire? Yeah. Well, I, I guess you encapsulated what I do. I mean, if, if you're going to manage a band, uh, you've got to be hands-on all the time in my view, not everybody does it that way, but you know, I probably get more involved in what happens on a day-to-day -day basis with both the music and the nuts and bolts that surround it than most managers. And uh, it, you know, it, it takes a lot of time to do it properly. Well, Phil, I, we really appreciate you spending the time with us and the kind words about Variety Attractions mm -hmm. and Todd Bolton and sharing some of your experiences because you know, I worked at a record label and oh, so what, but I mean, you're just <laughs> legendary and it was, it's just a true honor to be able to talk to you and Justine and I really appreciate it. Very much I appreciate so. it too. Nice to have met both of you and uh, listen, listen, we'll do it again sometime. When, when I do retire. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll buy you one. Yeah, we'll buy you some bacon and butter and we'll have a wild time. <laughs> Unless I've joined Herman of the Monsters before. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Phil. Thank you, Phil. Okay, yeah, Take care of yourself. Yep. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bruce and I want to thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at whichwayiscatering at gmail.com or visit us at varietyattractions.com. A big thank you to our sponsors, Brannigan Inc. and Spectrum Weather Insurance. Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. That's fabulous.